0: Welcome back to the Perspectives in History podcast. I'm your host, Willem Kahn. Thank you very much for listening, as always. Before we begin today, I'd like to apologize for the podcast being late this week. I don't want to bore you with too many details, but to make a long story short, I was traveling for the holidays and forgot to either record beforehand or to bring my microphone along with me. Rather than recording where I was using what I had on hand, I thought it would be better if I just recorded upon my return. Again, very sorry about this, but I'm sure you'll thank me for the audio quality being up to the usual standard. Really quickly, I'd also like to provide a brief update regarding this particular series of the podcast. So, just as I was beginning to wrap up writing the final episode of the series, I was made aware of a number of sources on the Korean War that I had not managed to locate when I first sat down to write the script nearly two years ago. After briefly reading through a few of these, I decided to go back through the entire thing and update it with new information. As a result, I plan to re-record episodes 1 through 3, or perhaps just 2 and 3, with the new script. I'm assuming that if you're listening to this episode that you've already listened to the first three episodes already, so I'll just say that you shouldn't feel like you should have to go back and re-listen to all of those again just to understand this episode and the rest of them going forward. The script has largely remained the same, just with new information in a few different places. So perhaps you may want to consider revisiting these episodes at some point in the future. Also, before we get started, I feel obligated to warn you that in the second half of this episode, we will be dealing with some pretty heavy subject matter. Specifically, the crimes against humanity that were committed by all parties involved in this conflict. I have chosen to include quotes of eyewitness testimony of these events to better illustrate their gravity, and these testimonials do have the tendency to get rather graphic. Also in this episode, I discuss in some detail the history of a racial slur that remains to this day offensive to people of Asian descent. Now, my policy when discussing such language has always been to leave the words in question uncensored. This was my approach when I wrote and recorded my previous series on the Haitian Revolution back in 2021, and as far as I'm aware, I have not received any listener complaints. All that said, I am aware that these words can be hurtful to some listeners. All I can do is offer you my sincere reassurances that I am not saying these things out of any sort of malice, but only with the intent to educate. I thank you in advance for your understanding. Anyway, all this has been to warn you that the latter half of this episode may not be for the faint of heart, so listener discretion is advised. With all that out of the way, let's get on with the show. In the last episode of our series on the Korean War, we watched as the war officially broke out when North Korean forces crossed the 38th parallel on June 25th, 1950. This attack caught the South Koreans completely off guard. Compared to the South Korean army, the Korean People's Army, or the KPA, as the Army of North Korea was known, was larger, better equipped, and better trained. It was for precisely these reasons that the premier of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, Kim Il-sung, was confident of a quick victory, boasting to Soviet leader Joseph Stalin that he believed that he could win the war and reunite the Korean Peninsula in a matter of just three days. After the initial outbreak of hostilities on the remote Onjin Peninsula, the KPA rapidly pushed south, threatening to capture the South Korean capital of Seoul. ROK Army forces broke and fled before the KPA's advance. President of the Republic of Korea, Syngman Rhee, fled the city as early as the night of the 25th. As refugees streamed out of Seoul in anticipation of the KPA's capture of the city, the ROK Army detonated explosives on the Han River Bridge, the main route south from the city. 800 people, mostly civilians, were reported to have died in the blast. The destruction of the bridge, in addition to being a humanitarian catastrophe, did little to prevent the KPA from taking Seoul. By the 28th, the South Korean capital was in North Korean hands. Meanwhile, news of the North Korean invasion was quick to reach the United States. By June 30th, a mere five days after the outbreak of hostilities, The decision had been made to intervene. The man primarily responsible for this decision was not President Harry Truman, nor was it General Douglas MacArthur or any other top US military leader. Rather, it was Secretary of State Dean Acheson. For Acheson, and those of a similar mind, while Korea was by no means strategically important from a purely economic or military perspective, it was absolutely crucial to the United States' geopolitical and ideological interests. After the conclusion of the Second World War, the U.S. had occupied the southern half of Korea as little more than an afterthought. The emerging geopolitical context of the Cold War, however, had altered the entire equation. The Truman Doctrine, first articulated in March 1947, had made halting communism and Soviet influence the top priority of American foreign policy. Korea would be the first real trial of the Truman Doctrine, as it presented the U.S. with an opportunity to defend the staunchly anti-communist regime in South Korea from communist aggression. Should the United States fail to save the Republic of Korea, it would constitute a major blow to American prestige across the globe. And so, as historian Sheila Miyoshi Yeager stated in her book, Brothers at More, The Unending Conflict in Korea, quote, Less than six days after the North Korean attack, American soldiers were committed to the fighting. The former Japanese colony that few had even ever heard of, and had been on the periphery of America's post-war interests, Suddenly became the epicenter of America's first armed confrontation against communism. Truman had drawn the line in Korea between freedom and slavery. Haphazardly and fatefully, Korea's localized civil war had morphed into a war between the centers of power in the post World War II world order. End quote. American troops deployed to Korea in the first days of July 1950 largely believed that before them lay a quick and easy victory. A number of factors had led them to reach this conclusion, not the least of which being their racist attitudes towards the Koreans, who they believed were a race inferior to their own. As the Americans would soon discover, however, they had gravely underestimated the fighting capacity of their enemy, while at the same time, the Americans had also overestimated their own combat readiness. The divisions deployed to Korea were at two-thirds of their total strength, and much of their equipment was in horrendous shape. Moreover, relatively few of the American soldiers had any combat experience to speak of. Most of them had volunteered for service after the conclusion of World War II, and had become used to the relatively comfortable conditions afforded them during the U.S. occupation of Japan. By way of comparison, a great many soldiers of the KPA were battle-hardened veterans of the recently concluded civil war in China. The North Korean Soviet backers had also supplied their army with much military materiel, including a number of Soviet T-34 tanks. At the first confrontation between the U.S. forces and the KPA at the Battle of Osan, the Americans' anti-tank weaponry proved ineffective against the KPA's tanks, and the Americans were routed. Now, something I failed to explain in any real detail in the previous episode was the role of the United Nations in this conflict. In 1947, the United States had appealed to the authority of the United Nations amidst their ongoing disputes with the Soviets as to the issue of Korea. In response, the U.N. issued a recommendation that general elections should be held in both occupation zones of Korea so as to establish a provisional government. The Soviets objected to this and refused to admit U.N. officials into the North to supervise these elections. The U.N.-mandated elections were held in the South only, and ultimately resulted in a victory for Syngman Rhee. On June 25, 1950, the United Nations Security Council passed Resolution 82, condemning the North Korean invasion and demanding the immediate cessation of hostilities and the withdrawal of North Korean forces back across the 38th parallel. The United Nations Security Council, being one of the principal organs of the UN as a whole, had initially been founded with five permanent members, the United States, the Soviet Union, the Republic of China, the United Kingdom, and France. Each permanent member of the Security Council possessed a veto which enabled it to block any resolution. If that was the case, then why did the Soviets not use their veto power to block the resolution condemning North Korea? This was because at the time the USSR was boycotting the Security Council, because it had refused to allow the People's Republic of China, which at this point controlled all of mainland China, to take the seat on the Council currently occupied by the Republic of China, which had since been relegated to the island of Taiwan. The Soviets' boycott allowed the United States and its allies, the UK, France, and Taiwan, a free hand to do what they pleased in the Security Council. Two days later, on June 27th, the Security Council passed another resolution, recommending that, quote, "...members of the United Nations furnish such assistance to the Republic of Korea as may be necessary to repel the armed attack and to restore international peace and security in the area." End quote. A third resolution was passed on July 7th, establishing a unified command for all UN forces under the leadership of the United States. Ultimately, 17 different nations, including South Korea and the US, would contribute combat forces to the combined United Nations command, while five others would participate in a non-combat capacity. We will talk a lot more about the individual nations that made up the coalition, and discuss their specific motives and contributions in the next episode. By late July, one month after the initial outbreak of the war, the North Korean offensive had stalled out. Contrary to the expectations of Kim Il-sung, the Syngman Rhee government did not capitulate after the fall of Seoul. On July 21st, the KPA took the city of Daejeon, roughly in the center of South Korea. In the days that followed, UN forces fell back and established a defensive line to protect the city of Busan, the second largest city in Korea, and the final destination of the KPA's planned invasion route. The KPA kept up the pressure on the UN forces along the Busan perimeter, but despite a final major offensive in early September which nearly broke the line, their defenses held. Meanwhile, American General Douglas MacArthur, now in the capacity of commander of the UN forces, was secretly preparing to hatch an audacious plan that might turn the tide of the war. Codenamed Operation Chromite, it involved an amphibious assault at Incheon, a major port city on the western coast of Korea, close to Seoul. As a matter of fact, the general had been considering such a possibility from the very moment that Seoul had fallen to the North Koreans in the first week of the war. Now, in August, over a month later, he felt that time was of the essence. It was imperative that his plan be put into action as soon as possible, before the inclement Korean winters set in. Just as concerning to MacArthur was the ever-looming prospect of a Soviet or Chinese intervention on behalf of the North Koreans, from his headquarters in Tokyo, MacArthur had been constantly sending messages to Washington, D.C., asking for more troops. With the American military having been drastically reduced in size from the days of World War II, the Joint Chiefs of Staff were reluctant to fill the General's increasingly extensive demands. The Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Omar Bradley, had reviewed MacArthur's plan and went on record as saying he regarded it as one of the riskiest he had ever seen. Sure, MacArthur's previous record demonstrated that he was capable of orchestrating tactical maneuvers similar to the one that he was now proposing, having done so several times throughout the Pacific Theater of World War II, most notably in the invasion of the Philippines in 1944. Still, amphibious assaults were highly complex operations involving huge amounts of manpower and materiel, and required intensive planning and coordination between the different branches of the armed forces. If such an operation were to fail, the costs could be potentially enormous. What gave Bradley and the other skeptics the most cause for concern was the treacherous geography of the landing site that MacArthur had chosen. The tides at Incheon were violent and unpredictable. The approaches to the harbor were narrow and easily defended, and the harbor itself was surrounded by formidable seawalls. It was for these reasons that MacArthur initially struggled to find support for his plan. In late August, he held a briefing with several high-ranking generals in Tokyo in the hopes of winning them over. Among those present were representatives of the Air Force, the Navy, and the Army, as well as MacArthur's former subordinate at the U.S. Military Academy, General Matthew Ridgway. MacArthur's briefing lasted for the better part of an hour and a half, during which time he did his best to dispel any misgivings that those present still had about his plan. He pointed out that since enemy forces were still concentrated far to the southeast along the Busan perimeter, Incheon and Seoul itself were likely to be lightly defended. He re-emphasized the urgent need to act quickly to turn the tide of the war before conditions became inhospitable, or before another belligerent entered the war on the side of the enemy. To those who continued to express doubts about the plan's practicality, MacArthur countered that it was precisely because of the seeming impracticality of the plan that it would be successful, as, quote, The enemy commander will reason that no one would be so brash as to make such an attempt, end quote. He concluded by delivering a typically melodramatic speech, stressing the urgency of the situation, quote, It is plainly apparent that here in Asia is where the communist conspirators have elected to make their play for global conquest. The test is not in Berlin or Vienna, in Paris, London, or Washington. It is here, and now, in South Korea. I can almost hear the ticking second hand of destiny. We must act now, or we will die. We shall land at Incheon, and I shall crush them, end quote. With these words, it seemed that the general was finally able to convince his colleagues. Ridgway came away from the meeting saying that, quote, "...my own doubts have been largely dissolved," end quote. He and the rest of those present agreed to advocate on MacArthur's behalf upon their return to Washington, D.C. By August 28th, the Joint Chiefs of Staff gave MacArthur their approval. To the surprise of nearly everyone involved, MacArthur's plan went off without a hitch. To his credit, MacArthur and his staff had planned the operation meticulously, and the planning had taken place with the utmost secrecy. This was no small feat, seeing as how over 260 ships and some 75,000 personnel were involved in the operation, making it one of the largest amphibious invasions in modern history. The battle commenced in the early morning hours of September 15th when, after two days of near constant bombardment from air and sea, the first UN forces, elements of the 1st Division of the US Marines, made landfall at Incheon, covered by further naval and aerial bombardment. Within a short time, 40,000 infantrymen had disembarked, along with several tanks. MacArthur's prediction that the enemy would not anticipate an attack at Incheon was absolutely correct. The harbor was defended only by a token KPA force, and there were only about 6,500 men in the Seoul area more broadly, meaning that they were outnumbered by UN forces by a ratio of nearly 6 to 1. By September 19th, most of Incheon had been secured and the advance on Seoul began. In contrast to the rapidity and ease with which the landing operation itself had taken place, the subsequent battle for Seoul was slower and far more difficult. The North Koreans, aware that the enemy would make a push toward the city, had begun to bring in reinforcements. Moreover, they had begun to organize the city's industrial workers into impromptu militia companies to aid in the defense. UN forces had managed to push past the city limits by the 22nd, but encountered unexpectedly stiff resistance. MacArthur, who was single-mindedly determined to recapture the South Korean capital as quickly as possible, ordered an all-out assault, supported by overwhelming artillery and air support. On the 25th, he prematurely proclaimed that the city had been liberated. In reality, it would take three more days of intense urban warfare to retake the city fully. United Press war correspondent Rutherford Potts wrote the following account of the second battle for Seoul, which appears in Bill Shin's 1996 book. I followed the First Marines through the smoldering rubble of central Seoul the day after its premature liberation. The last desperate communist counterattack had been hurled back during an eerie 2 a.m. battle of tanks firing at point-blank range, American artillery crashing less than a single city block ahead of marine lines, the echoed and re-echoed rattle of machine guns, all against the background of flaming buildings and darting shadows. Now it was almost quiet. The angry chatter of a machine gun up ahead, now and then punctuated the long pauses between mortar and artillery strikes, but on the street corner was condensed the full horror of war, stripped of the vital challenge and excitement which make it bearable to the men who must fight these wars. Telephone and power lines festooned the streets, or hung from shattered poles, which resembled grotesque trees. Bluish smoke curled from the corner of a clapboard shack, the only building even partially spared destruction along the left side of the street. A young woman poked about among a pile of roof tiles and charred timbers, looking for her possessions or, perhaps, her child. A lump of flesh and bones in a mustard-colored communist uniform sprawled across the curb up ahead and the white-robed body of an old man lay on a rice-straw mat nearer to the street corner. Marine ammunition and mess trucks churned the plaster and adobe rubble into dust as they shuttled back and forth from the front, just six blocks north. Southbound ambulance jeeps, almost always fully loaded with four stretcher cases on their racks, told the story of the pre-dawn battle. A tiny figure in a Marine's wool shirt stumbled down the street. Her face, arms, and legs were burned and almost eaten away by the fragments of an American white phosphorus artillery shell. She was blind but somehow still alive. Three other Korean children, luckier than she, watched as the child reached the curb, stumbled twice, and failed to climb the curb onto the sidewalk. The kids laughed. End quote. The communists continued to put up resistance to UN forces in Seoul as late as the 29th, although by that point, the fighting had become rather sporadic and disorganized. Combat was still taking place in the city when, on the 28th, General MacArthur, riding high on his victory, flew in from Tokyo, joining South Korean President Syngman Rhee in a triumphal procession down the streets of the war-torn capital to the National Assembly Hall, one of the few major buildings to escape the battle more or less intact. There, MacArthur presided over a ceremony, officially restoring the capital to the President of the Republic of Korea, speaking in what Shin called his, quote, usual sonorous and dramatic style, quote, MacArthur delivered the following speech before a large crowd of assembled American and South Korean officials, Quote, Mr. President, by the grace of a merciful providence, our forces fighting under the standard of that greatest hope and inspiration of mankind, the United Nations, have liberated this ancient capital of Korea. It has been freed from the despotism of communist rule, and its citizens once more have the opportunity for that immutable concept of life which holds invincibility to the primacy of individual liberty and personal dignity. End quote. After leading those assembled and reciting a Christian prayer, MacArthur turned to Rhee and proclaimed, quote, On behalf of the United Nations Command, I am happy to restore to you, Mr. President, the seat of your government so that you may fulfill your constitutional responsibilities. End quote. Rhee, overwhelmed by emotion, struggled to speak for a moment before finally responding through tears, quote, "...we admire you. We love you as the savior of our race. How can I ever explain to you my own undying gratitude and that of the Korean people?" End quote. General MacArthur's audacious plan paid off in several respects. The success of the operation at Incheon effectively turned the tide of the war in favor of the UN coalition. Now no longer fighting desperately to cling on to their last remaining foothold on the peninsula, the UN forces were now able to go on the offensive northwards, pushing the North Koreans back across the 38th parallel and potentially beyond. MacArthur's actions had won him widespread acclaim, even from people who previously expressed their doubts about his plan's feasibility. President Truman, who was initially reluctant to voice his approval, now sent the General a telegram, reading, quote, Few operations in military history can match either the delaying action where you traded space for time in which to build up your forces or the brilliant maneuver which has now resulted in the liberation of Seoul. End quote. "The success of the Inchon operation served to catapult MacArthur's fame and also his ego to epic new heights, a development that would have consequences further down the line," as General Ridgway later reflected. Quote, a more subtle result of the Incheon Triumph was the development of an almost superstitious regard for General MacArthur's infallibility. Even his superiors, it seemed, began to doubt whether they should question any of his decisions. Quote. Meanwhile, to the southeast along the Busan perimeter, UN forces went on the offensive. As U.S. Marines advanced on Seoul and began fighting building to building to retake the South Korean capital, the 140,000 UN coalition soldiers, a mix of American, British, and South Korean units who halted the North Korean advance and had held the line for the past six weeks, now struck out from their defensive lines along the entire 140-mile-long perimeter beginning on the 16th of September. Initially, the KPA attempted to mount a defense, using the hilly terrain of the area to their advantage. But by the 18th, The gravity of their situation had finally set in. For some time already, casualties had been mounting, outpacing their ability to muster reinforcements. The manpower situation had in fact become so dire that the KPA had begun to forcibly conscript South Korean civilians into their ranks, men whose combat experience was non-existent and whose loyalty was questionable at best. In short, the brief window of opportunity that the North Koreans had to finish the job and take Busan before Western reinforcements arrived in greater strength had closed. The failure of the Naktong River offensive at the beginning of the month had proven it now, with the success of the Incheon landing, a second front had been opened near Seoul, putting the main body of the army, a force of approximately seventy thousand, in imminent danger of being cut off from the north entirely. Therefore, it was with a heavy heart that k p a General Yu Song Chul ordered a strategic retreat at this point, he still believed it was possible for them to re-establish defensive positions about a hundred miles or so to the northwest yielding a considerable amount of territory to the enemy, while still maintaining a foothold below the 38th parallel. It soon became apparent that General Yu had overestimated his army's organizational capacity. By the 23rd, his top priority had simply become to save as much of his army as he possibly could from being completely encircled by the UN forces on either side of them. In the chaos of this sudden retreat, lines of communication broke down. Entire regiments of the KPA were effectively left to their own devices. The army's field commanders tried to maintain the cohesion of their units during this time, but this task proved difficult. Thanks to strong leadership, some units managed to withdraw back across the 38th parallel more or less intact, while others effectively disintegrated. In these cases, many soldiers simply deserted, quietly abandoning the ranks and fleeing into the countryside, hoping to hide themselves among the civilian population. This was the course of action taken by most of the South Koreans who had been forcibly pressed into the service of the KPA during the occupation. Several others, mostly South Korean leftists but some northerners as well, also broke ranks, but instead attempted to put up resistance to the UN and ROK forces behind enemy lines from places in the countryside. The central nexus of guerrilla activity was Jirisan, a cluster of mountains in the south-central area of the country near the southern coast. Jirisan's rugged geography made it somewhat inaccessible for larger formations of soldiers, but the perfect base for guerrillas to stage hostile actions against enemy forces. Raids on supply convoys, sabotage of communication lines, hidden run attacks against patrols, and so on. In fact, the region already had a long history as a hub for resistance fighters in the South, dating all the way back to Toyotomi Hideyoshi's failed invasions of Korea in the 16th century. After the suppression of the Yosu suncheon Rebellion in 1948, those rebels who managed to avoid death or capture had sought refuge at Jirisan. Now, they were joined by approximately 15,000 regular KPA soldiers who split off from their units during the retreat. As the KPA continued to yield territory to UN forces, the first reports began to trickle in regarding atrocities that had been committed by the North Koreans. According to the official US Army history of the war, quote, Everywhere, the advancing columns found evidence of atrocities, as the North Koreans hurried to liquidate political and military prisoners held in jails before themselves retreating in the face of the UN advance. Quote. This report's account of events is essentially accurate. During the retreat from the South, the North Koreans sought to extrajudicially kill reactionary elements, that is to say anyone they determined to have any meaningful connection to the governments of either South Korea or the United States. The victims of this repression were overwhelmingly other Koreans, but more appalling to Western sensibilities, a portion of them were American prisoners of war, including the 40 or so American corpses discovered at the site of one of the war's worst massacres, Daejeon. A former South Korean prison guard named Yi Chon yong later gave an account of what he saw as he returned to his hometown of Daejeon upon its recapture by UN forces. I entered the prison and walked around and discovered the corpses. They were black and covered with flies. I was speechless. I couldn't believe how cruelly the civilians had been killed. Some had been shot, and others seemed to have been killed by a blunt force that cracked their skulls. We went to the wells and found them full of bodies. We considered what to do. We obtained seven suspected communist prisoners and told them to line up the bodies. They asked to be killed rather than to handle them, so we returned them to the jail. Then I went to the city hall to ask for help. And the next day, they had managed to mobilize between three and four hundred people to clear up the bodies. They had them dig holes in the hill behind the prison to bury them. It took them two or three days to do it. At first, we thought of burying each of them individually, but there were just so many bodies that we had to bury them in groups, in larger holes. We don't have an exact count, but it must have been between four hundred and five hundred people." End quote. The discovery of more mass graves revealed the death toll of the Dajon Massacre to have been much higher between five and 7,000. Once again, Yi's experience in this regard was by no means unique. People were making similarly grim discoveries across the country. The shocking revelations of these mass murders carried out by North Koreans served to reinforce the idea in the minds of the Americans that the enemy that they were facing in Korea was a barbaric and primitive one. Hanson Baldwin, the New York Times colonist, who I quoted at some length in the previous episode to illustrate American attitudes towards the Korean people, wrote on this occasion, quote, In Korea, we are dealing with an unnatural enemy, one who has no regard for human life and who observes no rules of war or humanity. Like the Mongol hordes of Asia's past, this enemy fights with a blend of Asiatic fatalism and communist fanaticism. We are facing an army of barbarians, but they are barbarians as trained, as relentless and as reckless of life and as skilled in the tactics of the war they fight as the hordes of Genghis Khan. The North Korean hordes, like their Russian masters, have inherited the particular Mongolian penchant for cruelty and they use weapons of terror." However, it would be a mistake to assume that war crimes such as these were committed only by the North Koreans. As terrible as the crimes committed by the North Koreans were, and I by no means intend to simply write these off or to excuse them, the fact of the matter is that some of the war's worst atrocities were committed by South Korean forces against other Koreans. This of course follows a pattern that had been established years prior by the Jeju Uprising and the subsequent rebellion in Yeosu and Suncheon as described in the second episode of this series. Crucially, while Jeju had been fully pacified, the areas around Yeosu and Suncheon had not. As I briefly mentioned earlier, communist rebels retreated into the hills and mountains of the surrounding area and carried on a low-intensity guerrilla war that continued even after the unofficial end of the Korean War in 1953. In their manhunt for these rebels, South Korean authorities ended up arresting and executing hundreds of innocent civilians. In the wake of these aforementioned civil disturbances that had rocked South Korean society, in 1949, Syngman Rhee's government created an organization called the National Rehabilitation and Guidance League, better known by its Korean name, the Bodo League. Ostensibly, the purpose of the Bodo League had been to rehabilitate South Korean leftists, but its true purpose was far more sinister. By creating this organization, the government was able to provide itself with a comprehensive list of the names of its political opponents, The Bodo League's members had been enticed to join with promises that they would be protected from execution and enjoy other benefits, such as employment and food rations. As a result, many hapless peasants, whose only crimes were, more often than not, having participated in the now outlawed People's Committees, registered with the League for Amnesty. When war broke out on the Korean Peninsula in June 1950, President Rhee ordered the immediate execution of suspected communists for fear that they would somehow aid the North Koreans. In the days immediately following the initial invasion, several thousand civilians were arrested and executed, with most being members of the Bodo League. In his book, Ghost Flames, Life and Death in a Hidden War, Korea, 1950-1953, author Charles J. Hanley describes the experience of a young student named Shin Hyung-kyu, who returned to his hometown of Kochang on July 10th to discover that his father, a member of the Bodo League, had been imprisoned. Quote, Hyung kyu his distraught mother, and an uncle go to the jailhouse, a collection of tents heavily guarded by the police on the grounds of a government building in Kochong. The streets around the detention center teem with family members hoping for a glimpse or a word with the men abruptly torn from their homes. In the heat of the afternoon, Hyung kyu finally spots his father peering out from one of the tents. They shout to each other unintelligibly while his mother weeps. The son had never seen this strong-willed woman shed tears in this way. Later, two truckloads of detainees are driven away. Someone shouts that the police are taking them away to be executed. Wailing relatives run after the speeding trucks. One old woman collapses from grief in the street. Hyung kyu who just two weeks ago saw his calculus class as his greatest challenge, feels helpless to save his 38-year-old father, a poor but respected local civil servant, whose only crime had been to sit in on some meetings a long time ago. End quote. In a 2007 interview, a woman named Chung-kwang Im recalled a similar experience. Quote, One day the police came and asked me where my husband Pakman Ho was. I told them that he had gone away on business. Then they arrested me. I spent the night in jail. The next morning my husband came to the police station with our two children who had been crying for me all night. After he arrived, they called for me. They gave me the children and took my husband without any chance for us to talk. At the urging of others, I waited outside the prison. Around five in the morning, a siren rang and trucks came. They loaded the trucks with prisoners. We did not know where they were being taken to. I had later heard they'd been taken to Sané village. End quote. Chong's husband was executed in a valley near this village. Chong went to go find his body, but she was unable to identify him among the piles of corpses. The most successive killings of the Bodo League Massacre occurred in and around Daejeon. As the KPA advanced on the city, government officials, preoccupied with escaping, felt that they had no time to evacuate the some 7,000 detainees held in the local prison. Instead, they left the fates of these prisoners to the discretion of the guards. The commander of the local military police unit ordered the execution of any prisoners who had been arrested for their involvement in the Yosu-Suncheon Rebellion or the Jeju Uprising, as well as any who had been convicted of espionage. However, time was short, and there was not enough time to properly sort through the records of all 7,000 prisoners, so in the end, they were all marked for death. Yi Chun-yong, the South Korean prison guard, who I quoted earlier expressing his horror at the discovery of bodies of 500 people executed by North Korean forces, was actually a direct participant in the Daejon massacre carried out by the South Koreans. Here, I quote from an interview that he gave to a South Korean periodical in June of the year 2000. Quote, The Commandant said that executing all the prisoners might become a political problem in the future, but there was nothing that could be done about the situation since there was no time to sort through all their backgrounds. The prisoners, both men and women with their hands tied behind their backs, were loaded onto trucks. Men from nearby villages were mobilized to dig trenches. The prisoners were driven to various sites on the outskirts of the city and taken to the trenches in groups of about ten or so. They were forced to kneel at the trench and bow their heads. The firing team was composed of both military and civilian policemen. Even at point-blank range, some of them had not been killed outright. The commandant ordered me to confirm the executions and to finish off those who were not yet dead. I was carrying a 45 caliber pistol, unlike the other guards who had smaller caliber pistols. I shot those who were still alive and squirming as I walked by them. I did as I was ordered. As I walked by, I heard from behind me, Sir, sir, I am not dead yet. Please, sir, shoot me. I turned around and saw a man who had worked in the mess hall. He had been in prison for theft and had only one year left to serve on his ten-year term. Why didn't he say, "Hey, you bastard! I am not dead yet. Shoot me already, you bastard!" Why did he call me sir instead? He had no hostility towards me, and suddenly I felt a rush of anguish and respect for this man. He asked me to shoot him because he was suffering, and I did. Ye defended his actions on the basis that he was just following orders. Later in the interview, he stated, quote, I don't regret the deaths of communists who were convicted and sentenced to death, but for the others, I wonder what kind of people led our nation, who had allowed them to be executed as well, quote. Alan Winnington, a British journalist embedded with the KPA, published an account of what he witnessed at Daejeon in the British communist newspaper The Daily Worker. Quote, Try to imagine a valley. It is about five miles southeast of Daejeon. Hills rise sharply from a level floor of a hundred yards across, and a quarter of a mile long. In the middle, you can walk safely, though your shoes may rest on American cartridge cases. But on the sides, you must be careful, for the rest of this valley is merely a thin crust of earth, covering the corpses of 7,000 men and women. One of the party with me stepped through nearly to his hip in rotting human tissue. Every few feet, there is a fissure in the topsoil, through which you can see, into a gradually sinking mass of flesh and bone. The smell is something tangible and seeps deep into your throat. I could taste it for several days after. All along the death pits, waxy hands and feet, knees, elbows, and twisted faces and heads, burst open by bullets stuck to the soil. All six of the death pits are six feet deep and from six to twelve feet wide, with the biggest being two hundred yards long. The local peasants had been forced to dig them. On July 4th through the 6th, all prisoners from the jails and concentration camps around Daejeon were taken in trucks to the valley, after first being bound with wire, knocked unconscious and packed like sardines on top of each other. So truckloads were driven into the valley and flung into pits. Peasants were made to cover the filled sections of the pits with soil. End quote. When UN forces retook Daejeon in October 1950, the bodies of people killed by South Koreans were reported to have been killed by the North Koreans instead, thus making it practically impossible to arrive at a clear understanding of what had actually happened at Daejeon. Winnington was not the only journalist who reported South Korean atrocities to Western audiences. Take also, for instance, this account written by British reporter James Cameron for the picture post, in which he compared the South Korean detention camps in Busan to the Nazi concentration camp Bergen-Belsen. Quote, I had seen Belsen, but this was worse. This terrible mob of men, convicted of nothing, untried. South Koreans in South Korea, suspected of being unreliable. There were hundreds of them. There were skeletal, puppets of string... Faces translucent gray, manacled to each other with chains, cringing in the classic oriental attitude of subjugation, the squatting fetal position amidst piles of refuse. Around this medievally gruesome marketplace were gathered a few knots of American soldiers, photographing the scene with casual industry. I took my indignation to the U.N. commissioner, who said very civilly, most disturbing, yes, but remember that these are Asian people, with different standards of behavior, all very troublesome. It was supine and indefensible compromise. I boiled, and I do not boil very easily. We have recorded the situation meticulously with words and photographs. Within the year, it nearly cost me my job and my magazine its existence. End quote. The picture post never ran Cameron's article, and it did in fact go under shortly thereafter. Publicly, the United States government denied that reports like Winnington's were true, with the American Embassy in London dismissing Winnington's account as being nothing more than communist propaganda. Behind closed doors, however, these same officials worried that there might be some truth to these reports and deliberated with each other as to how to approach the situation. Many in the government of the United States and other nations in the UN coalition knew that information about the actions of their South Korean allies could not remain buried forever. Telford Taylor, an American lawyer, most famous for serving as the chief counsel for prosecution at the Nuremberg Trials after World War II, wrote to the New York Times, It seems apparent, if we take the press accounts at face value, that the atrocities have not all been the work of the North Koreans. The laws of war and war crimes trials are not weapons like bazookas and hand grenades to be used only against the enemy. The laws of war can be law only in the true sense if they are of general application and applied equally to both sides. We will make ourselves appear ridiculous and hypocritical if we condemn the conduct of the enemy... While at the same time, troops allied with us are, with impunity, executing prisoners by means of rifle butts supplied to backbones. End quote. But how could the South Koreans be restrained? We'll have a lot more to say about the crimes against humanity committed by Syngman Rhee's regime, and how these led to strained relations between the ROK and their allies in the future. But for the time being, let's turn to the American side of things. There is a lingering question as to the extent of the Americans' knowledge of the massacres of civilians, carried out by the South Koreans, as well as their capacity to have done anything to prevent them. General MacArthur received dozens of reports of massacres like those that had occurred in Daejeon, but he regarded such things as being an internal matter of South Korea, and as such he did nothing to put a stop to them. He deferred any and all inquiries on such matters to the American ambassador to South Korea, John Muccio. For his part, the ambassador entreated the South Korean government to only execute prisoners humanely, and after they had received due process under the law, but realistically, there is not much else that he could have done. It should go without saying, of course, that the U.S. military was also responsible for a number of their own war crimes in Korea, the most infamous of which was the Ri Massacre. In order to tell the story of this incident, we will have to backtrack a bit chronologically from September 1950 to July of that year. As you'll recall, at this time, the strategic situation in Korea had yet to stabilize. The front was highly fluid as U.S. and ROK forces lost ground to the rapidly advancing KPA. From the earliest days of the war, the constant stream of Korean refugees fleeing the war zone presented the Americans with a problem. First, the seemingly endless columns of refugees constantly blocked the soldiers' line of fire or overcrowded the roads, thereby slowing troops and equipment headed to the front lines. More serious was the potential threat of North Korean infiltrators among the refugees. As happens so often in times of war, the line that distinguishes civilians from combatants became increasingly blurred, and before long, American soldiers began to see enemies everywhere. One American war correspondent reported that, quote, Time after time, an American soldier would pass an innocent-looking bearded farmer hoeing a rice paddy only to be confronted with the same figure lobbing grenades at him in a dawn attack, end quote. On July 26th, Ambassador Muccio sent the following message to his superiors in Washington, D.C., informing them of the threats posed by these refugees, quote, The enemy has used the refugees to his advantage in many ways. By forcing them south and clogging the road so as to interfere with military movements, by using them as a channel for the infiltration of agents, and, most dangerous of all, by disguising their own troops as refugees, who, after passing through our lines, proceed after dark to produce hidden weapons and then attack our units from the rear. Too often such attacks have been devastatingly successful." There was no small degree of confusion among American commanders in the field, regarding how civilians near the constantly shifting front lines should be handled. Contradictory orders were often issued, ordering some civilians to evacuate further south, others to go north, and still others to remain in place. On July 26th, an order was issued to American soldiers in Korea that, quote, no refugees will be permitted to cross battle lines at any time, End quote. U.S. planes dropped leaflets on settlements to the north of the front, warning civilians that, quote, if refugees appear from north of the U.S. lines, they will receive warning shots and if they persist in advancing, they will be shot." American soldiers were growing more paranoid by the day about the possibility of partisan attacks, but fear was not the only emotion that the average GI was dealing with at this time. There was also a profound sense of frustration among the ranks, as Americans were dealt defeat after embarrassing defeat, setback after setback. After all, most of the Americans who had deployed to Korea in these crucial early days thought that this would be a cakewalk. They were not prepared to face an enemy as capable as the North Koreans, nor were they prepared for the inhospitable conditions of subtropical South Korea in midsummer. These feelings of frustration had begun to manifest themselves as an intense, pathological hatred of the Korean people, whom they began to refer to, whether friend, foe, or otherwise, by the derogatory term gooks. War correspondent Reginald Thompson noted that the average American GI, quote, "...never spoke of the enemy as though they were people, but as one might speak of apes. Every man's dearest wish was to kill a Korean." Thompson thought that the Americans called the Korean people gooks because "...otherwise, these essentially kind and generous Americans would not have been able to kill them indiscriminately or smash up their homes and poor belongings." In this atmosphere, tinged with frustration and racially charged paranoia, it was only a matter of time before a tragedy occurred. On the morning of July 26, 1950, a group of about 600 Korean refugees were halted by American soldiers of the 7th Cavalry Regiment just outside the village of Nogunri. A quick note regarding this particular regiment and its checkered past, this was the exact same 7th Cavalry Regiment of the U.S. Army that had carried out the Wounded Knee Massacre of 1890. The soldiers ordered the refugees to clear the road and wait along some nearby railroad tracks. Once there, the soldiers confiscated any and all knives, agricultural implements, and anything else that could conceivably be used as a weapon. Waiting for hours in the 90-degree weather, the soldiers refused to give the refugees permission to continue southward. Then, suddenly, around noon, the group of refugees was strafed by an American aircraft. Panic ensued as people were struck down by bombs and machine gun fire. The bulk of the group sought refuge in a concrete railroad underpass beneath a large bridge. After which point, the soldiers on the ground opened fire on the refugees with their machine guns. As one survivor recalled, quote, The American soldiers played with our lives like boys playing with flies. Children were screaming in fear and adults were praying for their lives, and the whole time they never stopped shooting, end quote. So many were killed that those trapped beneath the bridge had begun to stack the corpses on top of each other in order to shield the living from the bullets. The killings dragged on for the better part of three days. In Ghost Flames, Life and Death in a Hidden War... Hanley described the scene on the American side of the No-Gun-Ree massacre, Quote, And their foxholes on the barren hillsides, the men of the 2nd Battalion, 7th Cavalry Regiment, are in disbelief at what they are doing. Their field training in Japan, the Hollywood war movies, the recruiting sergeants, had never prepared them for this. Word came through the line, open fire on them, Private Buddy Wenzel later recalls. They were running towards us, and we opened fire. Over in G Company, Rifleman Joe Jackman hears his company commander behind the trench, Shouting, kill them all. Jackman opens fire. He also hears the screams from the Koreans at the concrete trestle below. Jesus Christ, what the hell are we into? He asks himself. Not everybody fires. Delos Flint of F Company is told by his sergeant to fire on the Koreans, but he refuses. It was just civilians trying to hide, he would later recall. End quote. In a subsequent portion of the same book, Hanley describes the experience of one survivor, a 23 year old mother of two named Park Sun Yong as she tried to escape the killing with her surviving child. Quote, Horrific scenes of suffering have unfolded minute by minute through the long hours since the slaughter began at midday Wednesday under the Nogunri Railroad Bridge. Machine gun fire ricocheting around the concrete walls, pot shots from M1 rifles when the Americans hear noise or spot movement among the trapped refugees, a return of strafing warplanes attacking them, all have left more and more of the Koreans, mostly women, children, and old men, dead or dying. Park Sun Yang is no longer among them. It's past midnight and the 23-year-old mother is in the darkness and the undergrowth, hundreds of yards from the bridge, trying to escape and save her surviving child. Sun Yang awakened the Chung family houseboy, a 15-year-old named Hong Ki, and told him to accompany her, to carry four-year-old Kupil on his back. They slipped out the Ri side of the tunnel and slowly, laboriously, crept away from the bridge, seeking the thickest vegetation and freezing when searchlights swept the area. It took them hours to move just a few hundred yards in the direction of Huanggan, the next village on the way south. Now they've reached a point where she feels that they can risk walking through the concealing brush. They carefully push on through the darkness, up a slope with Sun Yang in the lead. Suddenly, machine gun fire erupts, the gun's barrel flashing from a nearby rise. They hear the hiss of bullets around them over their heads. They drop to the ground. Ku Pil cries out for his mother. She sees the houseboy running back down the hill. Then she looks more closely at the abandoned Coupil. His right leg has been torn by a bullet, and he's crying in pain. Distraught, she wraps him in her arms to try to comfort him. Then with her teeth, she rips off a strip of cloth from the hem of her skirt and ties it around the wound. Feeling utterly helpless, she looks up to the heavens. What have we done to deserve this? she silently asks. As they lie on the hillside, the skies begin to lighten. Almost immediately in the dim light of dawn, she spots, through the mist, the form of an American soldier standing under a pine tree. He raises his rifle in her direction. She's petrified, speechless. She finally screams, Please don't shoot, in Korean. She feels like she's been hit with a sledgehammer, just as she hears the crack of his M1. She's on the ground, with an unbearable, burning pain in her side, barely conscious. She looks around. Kupil is motionless, on his back, blood spreading from his chest. The bullet that passed through her side had struck him in the heart. Coop please wake up, she pleads. Oh, please wake up, my little boy. She leans back to lie beside him on the grass to die. She closes her eyes and begins to recite the Lord's Prayer as blood pours from her wounded torso. Then she hears someone approaching. She opens her eyes. Two soldiers are standing over her. One leans down to check the boy's pulse. He is dead, but they see that she is still breathing. The other soldier pulls out a first-aid kit and applies antiseptic and bandaging to her wounds, in her right arm and in her side. She hears other soldiers arrive, and then she hears shoveling. They wrap the poor boy's body in a white cloth. They place him in a shallow grave, shoveling the dirt back over him. Soldiers arrive with a stretcher. They carry Sun Young to the nearby road and load the stretcher into a jeep. It drives off. As she's born towards the unknown, the now childless mother prays to the Lord to take her too. End quote. For several decades after the war, the truth of what had happened at Ri had not been public knowledge, in either Korea or the United States. Evidence suggests that high-ranking U.S. officials were made aware of the incident shortly after it took place, but information regarding it had been suppressed, and the testimony of survivors was dismissed out of hand. It was not until 1999 that, following an internal investigation conducted by the U.S. Army, the American government finally acknowledged that the killings had indeed taken place. Nonetheless, the survivors' demands for an official apology and compensation were rejected, with the report stating that the massacre at Nogunri was, quote, an unfortunate tragedy inherent to war and not a deliberate killing, end quote. This statement more or less sums up the attitude of the U.S. military to the killings of Korean civilians by American soldiers in general. When such matters were discussed at all, they were spoken about as unfortunate aspects of the war that were simply unavoidable, Occasionally, attempts were made to shift blame onto the enemy, such as in this interview conducted with U.S. Army Colonel Paul Freeman in 1970. Quote, this was the first time we had really encountered communist cruelty. When we first met with some of these North Korean attacks, they were driving civilians, elderly people in front of them as shields. We had a very difficult time making our men fire at them, but if we didn't fire at them, we were dead. I mean, our people were dead. This was a very hard thing to do. Unquote. Estimates regarding the number of people killed at Nogunri vary quite a bit depending on the sources consulted, and ultimately an accurate death toll may be impossible to determine, with investigations into the matter having been inconclusive. Thanks to the efforts of survivors, advocacy groups, and journalists, the Nogunri massacre is now fairly well known in the Western world, and is often discussed along Milai and Abu Ghraib as one of the worst war crimes in United States history. With all that being said, though, it would be a mistake to fixate disproportionately on this one incident at Ri, terrible as it may have been. The fact of the matter is that what happened at Ri was the result of the policies that the U.S. military had in place at the time. Killings of civilians by U.S. military personnel were not by any means relegated to this single incident. For every individual person killed at Ri. Several more lost their lives in acts of violence committed at a smaller scale, with their names and stories having been lost to history. In 2001, after revelations of the Nogunri massacre had come to light, then-President Bill Clinton issued a statement that read in part, quote, I deeply regret that Korean civilians lost their lives at Nogunri in late July 1950, quote. He stopped just short of issuing an official apology. Rather than issuing compensation to the survivors and families of the victims, the U.S. government instead offered $4 million to be used for the construction of a memorial at the site of the massacre. This offer was rejected on the basis that such a monument should be dedicated to all the Korean victims of the war, and not just those who had died at Nogunri. This brings me to the last subject I'd like to discuss in this episode, that being the Air War. I do apologize for diverting so far from the main narrative, but I feel like this particular aspect of the conflict is not as well known, at least not in the Western world, and merits some in-depth discussion in order to put the events that we will be discussing going forward in the proper context. So to begin with, you may recall that in the last episode, I provided a brief rundown of the fighting capacity of the North Koreans at the beginning of the war. As I believe I mentioned, the KPAF, or the Korean People's Air Force, consisted of about 130 planes. They had 60 light bombers, mostly Ilyushin IL-10s, and 70 fighter planes, mainly Yakovlev Yak-9s, all of which had been purchased from the Soviet Union a year prior. These models were somewhat outdated propeller aircraft that had been developed toward the end of World War II and were already in the process of being phased out of use by the Soviet Air Force. Moreover, very few of the North Korean pilots had sufficient training to be considered combat-ready. Still, as of 1950, South Korea hardly had an Air Force to speak of, and the KPAF was deployed relatively effectively in the initial days of the war. The situation in the air changed quickly once the United States Air Force was authorized to enter the conflict. In terms of both numbers and technology, the U.S. Air Force had an overwhelming advantage against their North Korean adversaries. As of June 1950, the USAF had over 4,000 aircraft active in Asia and the Pacific that could be redeployed to Korea in a matter of days. Additionally, many of these planes were powered by jet engines, which drastically improved their speed and maneuverability. Within a matter of days, the Americans were able to wrest back control of the skies from the North Koreans, and by early August, it was reported that the North Korean Air Force had been effectively destroyed. It would not be until China intervened in the conflict that American air superiority in Korea could be challenged in any meaningful way. I will have more to say about that next time. With the North Korean Air Force eliminated, the next phase of the air war could begin, the bombing campaigns. Having achieved air superiority, there was some debate in the upper echelons of the American military as to how to proceed. At the risk of somewhat oversimplifying matters, during the course of the Second World War, there were two main approaches to strategic aerial bombing, both having their own strategic advantages and ethical and practical concerns that had to be taken into consideration. Precision bombing, which designated specific targets for destruction, while attempting to limit collateral damage in civilian casualties, was generally preferred as the more humane and cost-effective option. The alternative to precision bombing, area bombing, sought to maximize destruction in a wider area, with the aim not being limited to the destruction of certain targets, but also demoralizing the enemy. This was the rationale behind several of the bombing campaigns of World War II that resulted in the near wholesale destruction of cities like Dresden and Tokyo. However, the high rates of civilian casualties and the questionable effect that these bombings actually had on enemy morale caused this approach to fall somewhat out of favor by 1950. In the early days and weeks of the war in Korea, the desire of American political and military leadership to limit the scale of the conflict led them to pursue a policy of precision bombing. Pilots were instructed to only bomb targets deemed to be, quote, vital to the enemy's war-making capacity, end quote. Acceptable targets included communications and logistical infrastructure, military installations, and industrial facilities. Despite this policy being in place from July to October 1950, hundreds of civilian casualties were reported during this period. The simple fact of the matter is that the bombs that were in use at this time were not nearly as sophisticated as the ones that are used in the current day. During World War II, it was understood that even in the context of a so-called precision bombing operation, at most an estimated 20% of explosives deployed would actually hit their intended target. Subsequent technological advances may have increased accuracy somewhat, but not significantly. Since Korea, especially the North, had been industrialized to a greater degree than the South, targets seemed acceptable by the Air Force Command tended to be located near major population centers. Therefore, given the general inaccuracy of the bombings, the result was significant civilian casualties. The policy of precision bombing was abandoned after less than three months, when the Air Force began to run out of targets. But instead of deeming their mission accomplished and scaling down operations, the remainder of the war saw a massive escalation in the bombing campaigns in terms of intensity, frequency, and the destruction wrought. Now, in the initial draft of the script for this series, I continued this discussion of the air war in this episode past this point, but I feel that for the sake of chronology and time management, it would be best to discuss this topic further in the next episode. Additionally, in the final episode of the series, I plan to offer a further assessment of this aspect of the war and its more lasting impacts. But, in the next episode, we will pick up about where we left off with the main narrative in the autumn of 1950 shortly after the Battle of Incheon and the recapture of Seoul. I will also include a discussion of the other non-US and ROK participants in the UN coalition, as well as a discussion of how the world's communist countries reacted to the North Koreans' stunning reversal of fortune. All of this building, of course, to another decisive turning point in a war that has been filled with decisive turning points. So please be sure to tune in again in two weeks to hear the next exciting episode of the Perspectives in History podcast series on the Korean War. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns you'd like for me to address, please do not hesitate to send me an email at perspectivesinhistorypod@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can also reach me on Facebook and the website formerly known as Twitter, links to both of which will be in this episode's description. If you like the show and want to help keep it going for the foreseeable future, consider helping me out monetarily either by becoming a supporter of the show on Patreon or by purchasing some used books from me on eBay. Links to both of these webpages can be found in the episode's description as well. Before doing my usual sign-off, I'd like to briefly remind you about what I said at the top of the show about the reworked versions of episodes 1 through 3 of the series that I will be uploading hopefully in the next few days. To clarify, I will be updating the file for each of these episodes and not reposting them, so you won't receive a notification or anything. But I reassure you, they will be new recordings with additional content. Hopefully by the time the next episode releases, I'll be done with this, and I'll be sure to let you know at the top of the show next time. One last thing, since this was scheduled to be the final episode of the year, I'd like to take the opportunity to thank you all for listening to the podcast. 2023 has been a massively successful year for the show, and it's thanks to you all. So whether you're new, or if you've been on board since 2020, or even if you're listening to this sometime in the future, I'd like to give you my most sincere thanks, and to wish you all a happy new year for 2024. May it be better than the last in every way possible. Anyway, that's quite enough for the time being. Until two weeks from now, this has been the Perspectives in the History Podcast. Thank you again for listening. I'm your host, Willem Connor, signing off.